You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, this morning we begin a new uh, series, a three-week series, called In God We Trust. And it's not a stewardship series. It's uh, unabashedly a series just about money. Sometimes stewardship series masks what preachers want to say about money, but this is just telling you what it is. It's a series about money. And uh, I tell you, we're oftentimes uncomfortable with this topic. Uh, sociologist at uh, Princeton University, Robert Wuthnow, writes, The darkest taboo in our culture is not sex, not death, but money. We just don't feel comfortable talking about it. We don't talk about it outside of our own family. 89% of us, Wuthnow shows, um, do not discuss our personal finances beyond that circle. And uh, 97% of us do not share anything about our personal finances with uh, our church family as well. And yet, Billy Graham says, if a person gets his or her attitude toward money right, it will straighten out almost every other area of their life. Dramatic claim. And you know that the Bible speaks about money more than almost any other topic. Jesus Christ himself elevates this as a topic of great concern in his teaching. And it's not because God thinks money is so important, by the way. It's because we do. It's because you and I have a way of wrapping our hearts around money. And God wants our hearts. So we're going to talk uh, over the next three weeks about a spirituality of money. And our text this morning is really a celebration of wealth. Money as good. So would you open up your Bibles to Psalm 112? Uh, you'll find that on page 490, right in the middle of the Bible is the Psalter. I'm going to read the whole psalm together. Let's stand as God's people and read his word aloud. Psalm 112. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. They will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of evil tidings. Their hearts are firm, secure in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have distributed freely. They have given to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn is exalted in honor. The wicked see it and are angry. They gnash their teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked comes to nothing. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, the psalm 
begins. Happy are those who fear the Lord. This is an Old Testament benediction. Blessed are those. Same word Jesus will use in his uh, Beatitudes. Blessed are those. Uh, Happy are those who fear the Lord. And this happiness is interestingly connected to money. Could be good news, could be slightly troubling or confusing for us. Let's look at this. I want to talk with you about money's use, its source, and its security. Money's use, source, and security. Let's begin first with the use of money. How do these happy people, as they're described by the psalmist, use their money? Clearly they use it for generosity. That is to say, they invest it or give it freely for the benefit of others. I see this in uh, verse 3. Wealth and riches are in their houses. They're generous with their families. Uh, We see this uh, in verse 5. It's well with those who lend generously, deal generously and lend. Their generosity extends beyond their home into their business affairs, their relations with other members of society. They share. And then we see finally down in verse 8 that they... uh, um, not eight, it's nine. They've distributed freely. They have given to the poor. By the way, those who lend in Israel, to the extent they're lending to Israelites, do not do so for profit in the way that we do uh, today. You couldn't charge interest when you were loaning money to an Israelite. So the only reason to lend to an Israelite would be to help them out. A brother has fallen and stumbled and you loan them some money to let them get back on their feet. They will repay it in time. Now, why does the psalmist say you give to the poor? Because the poor are those who do not have land. And without land, they have no capacity to generate produce by which they could pay back a loan. And so the poor just receive charity, just give money to the poor with no expectation of return. And this is exactly the way these uh, men and women uh, described as happy are using money generously. But now, two things to note about the use of their money. First of all, you're probably not surprised to hear that they're generous, that they're giving money. You're probably not surprised to hear that from a preacher, that giving money is a good idea. And yet, note, they're not giving to the church. They're not giving to the temple. They're not giving for any religious end uh, in and of itself. It doesn't appear to be so. This appears to be wholly secular generosity. See, that they're, they're giving not to... Uh, Religious people because of their religion or uh, to to any people because of their devotion to God necessarily. They just see people who can be blessed by their own happiness. And out of their abundance, they give generously. Now, I make this point because I think oftentimes um, those of us who are Christians don't understand that, yes, God approves of a secular use of money. Even sometimes God thinks that a secular use of money is more important than a religious use of money. I want to prove that to you. That was exactly the point that Jesus made in Mark chapter 7 when he rebukes, essentially, a group of religious people who are practicing a tradition called Korban. Korban was a, really, it was a re-characterization of your funds. As though you had a, an IRA, it was money that was for the support and retirement, not of yourself, but of your parents, mom and dad. And out of religious 
devotion, these uh, religious people said, you know what, I'm going to recharacterize a portion of those funds for the temple. I'm going to give them to God. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. You think you're giving devotion to God by taking money from your parents and giving it to the temple? One of the great Ten Commandments says, honor your father and your mother. It's a secular use of money. And, you know, the New Testament has many instances, examples of how we are to use our money. Care for the parents, as I just mentioned in Mark chapter 7. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, we see the support of family members. In Ephesians 4, we see that money is used for earning a salary, compensation. In James 5, for employers to pay compensation in wages. In Mark 12, we see that money is used for paying taxes, for supporting a, a governmental authority. And in John 4, to buy supplies like food. Or in Luke 22, supplies like a sword. These are secular uses of money, and Jesus Christ endorses them. So the second thing uh, that we want to notice here in the use of money is that these happy people are generous not out of any obedience. It's interesting. You, you think they might be because they delight in the commandments of the Lord in verse 1. But there's no sense as we read this psalm that they're responding to a commandment when they give. It's interesting. You and I so often give out a sense of duty or obligation. Oh, we see a photo that... Uh, comes in a mail solicitation, you know, we're hounded uh, every time we turn on the radio during pledge week, you know, and, and feel a little guilty. And we may eventually write that check, perhaps not so much because we are committed to public radio, though we may be, but because we just want to get over the guilt, you know. Or sometimes we walk by a homeless person, and yeah, we're opposed to homelessness, and yes, we care about that person, but be honest. Do you not sometimes give that change to that homeless person because you just don't like the feeling of guilt that you feel when you walk by? These people are not giving to relieve any sense of obligation or shame that they feel in the face of other people's needs. They give because they want to. They give because they love it. They give because these happy people want other people to share their happiness, and that makes them even happier to do so. Where do they get this kind of motivation? How is it possible to, to live such authentic and free, generous lives? This brings us to our second point, the source of good money. If the use of good money is generosity... Money, to be good, must also have a good source. You and I know that there has to be something behind money. If I have a dollar bill, it doesn't have any intrinsic value. There's got to be something behind it, right? You write a check. We all know the thing that travels fastest through our universe is a bad check. And, <clears throat> and we've seen the, on a kind of cosmic scale the mystery of this, or the, the uh, reality of this, rather, in this mortgage-backed securities crisis. The entire global economy is failing because of mortgage-backed securities. Well, we've all had an education in exactly what that means, so even a pastor can tell you. And a mortgage-backed security is a debt obligation that you hold. It has value because there are people who have borrowed money to buy a home. And as long as they pay interest on that loan, that interest goes into this bundled set of securities and your note has value. See, behind your mortgage-backed security, a lot of people who have homes and intentions to pay uh, those loans back. 
But as soon as they can no longer pay those loans, your security is worth nothing. See, the value of money is determined, it's fixed by what is behind it, what its source is. And so if your money is really going to be good money, it has to have something behind it that is good. It must be a good source. What would that be? Well, the money in the ancient Near East was not like our money. It was not backed by the good faith of a government, fiat currency, as economists call it. It was not backed by a gold standard, as ours was before 1971. The money that was used in ancient times in Israel was just commodities, goods. And usually it was three things. It was cattle, silver, and gold. Sometimes you see wine and oil substituted just as money. And so even though the, our English translations say money, it's this kind of good that's not representational. It doesn't stand for anything else. It has its own intrinsic value. And yet, even the ancient Hebrew mind understood that behind something that has intrinsic value, there is something else that gives it that value. There is someone else. And we see that reality in Psalm 112. I'd like to show you what is behind Psalm 112. There's something behind the generosity of these happy people. There's something behind their use of money that endorses it, that ennobles it, that gives it its strength. And the thing that is behind Psalm 112 is described in Psalm 111. Turns out these are two twin psalms. And I wanted to show you quickly how you could see that. There are four things. First of all, both of them begin, praise the Lord. Alleluia is the Hebrew word. Both of them, secondly, are alphabetic acrostics. If, if you and I were reading in Hebrew, we would see at the beginning of each one of these lines a Hebrew letter. A, uh, all the way down to the end. And, and every line begins with the next letter in the alphabet. And, uh, and that's true of both psalms. Both psalms have 22 lines. Uh, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. Each of these verses are couplets. Except for the last two, in both psalms, they're triplets. It's interesting. So Psalm 112 seems a conscious imitation of Psalm uh, 111 in its form. So the first line is the same. Secondly, the form is the same. And third, the theme of the fear of the Lord is dealt with in both. Psalm 111 culminates with this verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Psalm 112 initiates with uh, happier those who fear the Lord. So Psalm 112 is the development of the conclusion of Psalm 111. And fourth and most important, we see that the themes are parallel all the way through the two psalms. We see that Psalm 11 is a psalm about God, a generous God. And Psalm 112 is, therefore, by implication, a psalm about a generous people. What is true about God in Psalm 111 becomes true about us in Psalm 112. I mean, just quickly at the three major themes here, verses 2 and 3 of 111, celebrate the works of the Lord in creation, all who study them, delight in them. And then Psalm 112, a picture of a family in creation being blessed on their land that God has created. 
And Psalm 111 verses 4 and 5 uses language from the Exodus. The Lord is gracious and merciful. These are wonderful deeds of redemption. God is a redeemer on Mount Sinai. After God had rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, God reveals his sentence name to Moses. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. On and on he goes. And so we praise God for Redeemer, gracious and merciful. And then likewise in 112, verses 4 and 5, we see the same words. The righteous people, those who rise in darkness as a light for the upright, are those who are gracious, merciful, righteous. And and then finally in verses 6 through 8, we see that there is a stability about the Lord. There is a might, there is a power in Psalm 111. That same stability is that which uh, the uh, happy people experience in verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 112. Their hearts are firm. They will never be moved. Their horn is exalted or lifted up in honor. A horn, by the way, is a symbol for royalty, king, authority, power and might in, in ancient Israel. So Daniel would speak of four horns, four kingdoms that would rise. And so here the psalmist says, the horn of the righteous will rise in honor or glory, kavod, the wealth of God. So we see that Psalm 112 is trying to tell us that who we are in relationship to wealth is determined by who God is and our experience of Him. If we know God's generosity as a creator, as a redeemer, and as a king, we will be set free to demonstrate His generosity in creation, in drawing other people into His rescue, and in the kingdom over which He rules. So notice in verse 3 of Psalm 111, it says, His righteousness endures forever. Same verse in Psalm 12. Now it's changed. Their righteousness endures forever. What does that mean? My righteousness endures forever? No, I don't think so. You don't know me very well if you think my righteousness has any enduring value to anybody. It's as filthy rags, as the scriptures say. In what sense could my righteousness endure forever? Only if God has taken his righteousness and given it to me. Which is exactly what the psalmist is saying. His righteousness has become their righteousness. How does that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, of course, it's happening through the sacrificial system. But those things point, ultimately, to the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's on the cross that God correctly values our righteousness, it's worthy of punishment. But it's in the resurrection that God confers upon us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is his own righteousness, which endures forever. So anybody who looks on on Jesus Christ with faith now has an experience of God's righteousness. That's the meaning of grace. We don't oftentimes think of money in terms of grace, do we? We tell ourselves, I work for a living. I earn my money. I've pulled myself up by my bootstraps. Really? Think about that for a second. Where were you born? Into what family? What educational opportunities did you have? You could have been born in 5th century Siberia. 
I mean, I don't think they even had the SATs there. <laughs> do, do you really think that you have earned your money? God would speak to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8, warning them, saying, When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks have multiplied, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness, an arid wasteland with poisonous snakes and scorpions. He made water flow for you from flint rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your ancestors did not know to humble you and to test you and in the end to do you good. Do not say to yourself, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. He gives us the power to get wealth. It's grace. We forget that. We think we're the ones. And so this is an acrostic hymn for memorability. That you and I might remember that all that we have is really a derivative. Our Wealth is a derivative, and the underlying asset is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This explains the motivation of those who use their money towards generosity. It's just a response. It's a reflection. It's a reaction to the grace of a generous God. It just bounces right off and go, hey, wow, look, I've got something to share. Your wallet is only as full as your experience of God's grace. Finally, you might say, George, truthfully, my wallet is actually empty. And I've got some questions about Psalm 112 and the things you've been saying, because I, I want to know, are the poor unblessed? Uh, are the faithful always supposed to be wealthy and prosperous? Well, let's look at the third point, security. The security of good money. Because the, the text really does seem to affirm the security of those uh, who are generous and experience a generous God. It says, their righteousness endures forever. That's verse 3. It's also verse 9. It's a refrain. Anytime the Bible repeats something, pay attention. And in verse 9, it's enhanced. Their horn is exalted in honor. There is a kingly aspect to their stability and security. Do all who share in this righteousness experience wealth? I want to say yes and no. Yes, someday, but no, not today. Two reasons for this. First of all, even in Psalm 112, there's an implication of a threat to wealth. Evil tidings come to those who are generous. In verse 7, bad things happen to good people. There are foes who bring fear into the life, verse 8, of a generous person. So even here, wealth is not um, without its challenges, but all the more so for us. Secondly, the second reason is more significant than the first, and that is this, that there is a covenantal difference between Israel's relationship with God and our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God today. You see, in Israel, God has told a story about his generosity, about 
His grace and abundance. Israel, for the period of time it was in existence, was to be a blessing to the nations by demonstrating what it meant to live in the presence of a good God. In that sense, it was kind of pointing backwards to Eden, where we lived a a whole, peaceful, abundant life with God. And it points ahead to eternity, where again, without the presence of sin, we will live a whole, peaceful, abundant life in the presence of a holy God. Israel is to demonstrate that reality very physically. And so God says, I am going to bless you materially, as in Eden, as in eternity, so that the nations will see the abundance of creation, the abundance of redemption, the abundance of my rule in the kingdom. But this is not forever. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that what happened under the law in Israel is a shadow. It's not the thing itself. It witnesses to the thing itself. And what is the thing itself? Of course, it's Jesus Christ. It's when God's abundance comes, not in a nation or in a people, but in a person. Jesus is our abundance. He is God, the creator, God, the redeemer, God, the king. And when the real thing or the true thing comes, the shadow is no longer needed to witness to that greater reality. And so when Jesus comes... Yes, he promises us economic security. The streets of eternity are paved with gold. But not today. Today, our life and our service, our ministry, is like his. He laid aside the riches of God to come and live among us in weakness and struggle and suffering and poverty. And all who hear his call... To come to himself and experience his life will likewise hear his call to live in just such weakness and poverty. And so our age is not an age in which God promises to bless us physically, but he does bless us spiritually. So Jesus will give a New Testament beatitude. He will say, blessed are you who are poor, happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed, happy are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed or happy are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Oh, God doesn't give money today to bless the faithful. I like what Abraham Lincoln says. You can tell how God thinks about money by looking at who he gives it to. Right? I mean... There are many rich people who are unrighteous and many righteous people who are unrich. True blessing is relationship with Jesus Christ. And when we discover that, our hearts will not be moved by anything. We are liberated for generosity. So the Apostle Paul would quote Psalm 112 when he writes to the Corinthians. Second Corinthians, you know, in this book he has talked about his suffering. Shipwrecks, beaten with rods, cold, without food or water. He's hardly prospering materially. And yet he will say, God will hold you secure, even materially. He quotes this psalm. This promise does not go away. Listen to Second Corinthians 9, 8 and 9. Paul writes, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. He's talking about wealth. So that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work, as it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 112, our refrain, He scatters abroad, 
He gives to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Happy people. People who have been blessed. Yes, money is good. Money is good if it is backed by a good God creator who makes a rich creation, a redeemer, who secures us with his righteousness and a king who promises to hold us fast in his love while we face the risks and the dangers and the joys of living generous lives. Friends, let's live a generous people. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we can see you clearly, our hearts are filled with joy. There is in you everything we ever thought we wanted from this world and so much more. And you desire to give it to us freely. Grant that we might be a people who stop slaving, stop earning, stop working for these gifts, but just receive them. And having done so, and being relieved in your grace, may we live a happy people, happy and generous, free to use money for its intended purpose, to bless those around us, near and far, in Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.